you pray with me? God, it is so good for us to be together and to sing praises to you, to worship you. And we just pray this morning that you have felt our love, our gratitude for your mercy and grace towards us. We thank you in the name of Jesus this morning for all that you have done for us. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as Darren said, we are wrapping up this three-part series about things that we wish Jesus had never said, not because we've run out of them. (laughs) I think the Bible, the New Testament, is full of things that I wish Jesus had never said. We're going to look at uh, one more, or a couple more actually, out of Matthew chapter 5 this morning in one of Jesus' most famous messages, one of the lengthiest messages called the Sermon on the Mount. It was a message he gave on a mountainside, and it was largely about personal ethics, about how we should treat each other, what we should do when people hurt us, injure us, insult us, judge us, how we should react when people take advantage of us. That was the bulk of what the Sermon on the Mount was all about. Jesus clearly came to teach us a different value system, a different way to live our lives. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is probably one of the most famous things that Jesus ever said. And honestly, one of the most famously ignored things that Jesus said. And for me, the one thing that I wish he had never said, it's the most Top of the list for me. So you ready for it? It's overwhelming. Thanks. (laughs) Here's the thing. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 43. I think you're going to hate it as much as I do. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? So be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I am convinced that sometimes God orchestrates these sermons, these talks, these messages so that I have to give one because I need it, not because of you. And this is one of those, because I wasn't originally scheduled to give this one. So I'm up here talking to myself today. Feel free to listen along. My natural inclination, and I'm going to guess yours is too, is to not only hate my enemies, but to hate this command out there now. Because loving my enemies seems illogical. It just seems like a bad idea. You with me? Thanks. It is just not a good idea because my enemies are people who want to hurt me. And so if I love them, I'm just opening up myself to more hurt. And I don't like to be hurt. It's just not my favorite thing. So what's Jesus asking me to do? In this passage, is he suggesting that when I go to bed at night, 
I should open all my windows and doors and leave them unlocked. And at 2 a.m., when somebody who wants to hurt me comes into my house, I just show them around, welcome them. Here's where we store things, here's where we hide them from people like you. Help yourself, have a nice day. If the Taliban moved into my home, we have a hug fest. Is that what Jesus is saying? This command just seems wrong. So wrong that we search our minds and try to find some kind of a bizarre scenario that allows us to dismiss it. Some loophole that'll let us out. That certainly is one of the most difficult teachings of Jesus. So much so that Religious teachers for centuries have tried to find a way out of it. The reformer John Calvin writes that during his time, his day, in the mid-1500s, religious leaders had turned this teaching of Jesus into simply a counsel, a suggestion, not a command. That's how they taught it. They said it was something that was meant to be followed by only the most rigid or advanced Christians. They said, really, the only ones expected to follow this were monks who lived in monasteries, secluded away from people. They did. Calvin said, by his day, loving your enemy was thought to be too difficult for the average Christian to obey. Is it really that difficult? Is it really that hard to do this thing that Jesus is commanding us to do here? Let's pick it apart and see. He starts by quoting a verse from the Old Testament that by Jesus' day had already been twisted and distorted. The first part of that quote, love your neighbor, came from Leviticus 19.18, a passage in the Old Testament. The text actually says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now, maybe you remember that this has been a question for ages. The latter part was added by the religious teachers. They studied this text from Leviticus and they started to ask questions of it. They asked things like, well, who is my neighbor? Let's pick that apart. They were asking it not to gain an understanding, but to narrow their responsibility. So in Jesus' day, one of the religious leaders came to him and asked that question. At the root of the question, the guy was trying to say, who does God expect me to love? Jesus then told him the story of the Good Samaritan. Taught this devout Jewish man that he had to love even his most despised enemy. This race of half-bloods, these outcasts, the religious pariah of his day. And they came to this logical conclusion by Jesus' day from studying Leviticus 19.18 that was very different than what God intended. They carefully parsed out, who is my neighbor? clearly defined a narrow group of people that they had to love and said, these, these people, (laughs) these select few, these are our neighbors. And the opposite of neighbor must be enemy. So we love our neighbors. What's the opposite of love? Hate. So we're going to love our neighbors, hate our enemies. And that became the religious dogma that they taught people. It wasn't what God said. It was just what they taught And that teaching was passed on for centuries, became a common, accepted way to live. And if you've been watching news from the Middle East for the last, oh, I don't know, anywhere from two weeks to 60 years, 
You can see that philosophy played out in leaders of countries and across the Middle East. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. They celebrated. We found a loophole, and we can freely hate with God's approval. One of my favorite writers, Anne Lamott, says this, you know you've essentially made God in your own image when he conveniently hates all the same people that you do. Now, though I'd like to deny it, I think you and I may have the same tendency to categorize in our lives. To break the world around us into us and them. Neighbors, enemies. At the office, in our neighborhood, even at times in our family. On the lighter side of categorizing, I need to tell you that I am this close to categorizing people who post their workouts on Facebook as my enemies. It is not helpful to me when I'm trying to drag my fat body out of bed in the morning and get on the, on the treadmill to see that you've already done your 45-minute PX90 workout. No thank you. Or that you've run to work that day in Chicago. Thank you. I don't need to know that. A little tougher is when we label and point fingers at people who in this tough economy are successful in their work and say, well, they must have lied or cheated or stabbed somebody in the back to get that promotion or get that raise or get that job. We, in jealousy, we label them. If we go all the way to the dark side, we have true enemies in our lives, people who've hurt us, betrayed us. And there are a handful of people in my life right now that my life would just be qualitatively better if I could just push a button and erase their memory from my life. One of those includes a senior pastor I worked with in Ohio who deeply wounded me and my family for two years as we worked together. But maybe more painful than that is the one leader in that church who I helped work through horrific sins in his life. And I stood by him as he confessed those sins to his wife. Stood by them as they reconciled their marriage and the damage that that confession did as he worked through the issues. And then he stood silently by while I was berated and abused by this pastor. The damage done in my life left me wanting to leave the ministry doubting myself and doubting my God. And the pain is still there 15 years later. Got any people that hurt you in your life? Any enemies whose memory you'd like to erase? Truth? Ever felt like you just want to erase those enemies? (laughs) Jesus knows full well how we feel, what our natural inclination is when it comes to our enemies. And he calls us to live differently. He says, yeah, I know they hurt you. I know they betrayed you, they criticized you, they took advantage of you, and it makes sense for you to want to retaliate, to have 
this opportunity to take revenge or even just to cut them out of your life, to not love them. I know you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm telling you, love your enemy. That's some hard stuff. Some of us in the room are going, that's like advanced Christianity, you know? I'm just on baby steps. I'm just, I'm just trying to read my Bible every now and then. I'm just trying to pray. I'm just struggling to get to church on Sunday morning. Honestly, I'm just trying to get out of the parking lot without flipping somebody off today. <laughs> this is like senior stuff, and I'm just a freshman. What does loving my enemies even look like? I thought back to 2006. You may remember the story that was in the news. We didn't hear much about what happened after. 2006, a man by the name of Carl Roberts made his way into an Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Took hostage this one-room schoolhouse and everyone in it. And then one by one dismissed all the boys and all the adults and kept 10 girls between the ages of 6 and 13 in that schoolhouse. And then one by one shot all 10 girls. Five of them died. And then he turned a gun on himself and took his own life. We heard about the horrific event. We didn't hear much about the aftermath. And the response of the Amish community was an excellent example of what Jesus is teaching here about loving your enemies. A grandfather of one of the murdered girls warned some of the young relatives not to hate the killer, saying, we must not think evil of this man. One member of the Amish community comforted Robert's family only hours after the shooting and extended forgiveness to them. Community members visited his widow, his parents, and his in-laws. And one of those men held Robert's father in his arms for an hour as he sobbed and grieved over what his son had done. The Amish community set up a college fund for Robert's children and raised money so that they could continue in their life. And 30 members of that community went to Robert's funeral to console his family. Unbelievable. Mary Roberts, the wife of the shooter, wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness, their grace, and their mercy. And she wrote, in part, Your love for our family has helped provide the healing we so desperately needed. The gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. That kind of love is amazing. It's what Jesus is calling us to have but it doesn't stop there. He doesn't say just love them. He goes on to say, pray for them. Now we have a hard enough time praying for the people we love, praying for our friends and our family. We have a hard enough time with those first steps of don't hate them, don't avoid them, don't talk badly about them. Now we have to pray for them. (laughs) Why? Jesus knows that our tendency is to pray for the things that matter most to us the things we want God to change. And when it comes to our relationship with our enemies, there is something that Jesus wants to change. 
here. But it has more to do with us than it does with our enemy. And this is as hard for me to say as it may be for you to hear. Jesus wants me to begin to care about my enemy. He wants me to see them as he sees them. As a human being who's made mistakes. And that change in my heart may be the toughest thing that I ever have to do. When Jesus says that I should pray for my enemy, it's not about asking God to change them. God, turn them into a nice person. God, make them come and apologize to me. God, do something to them. <laughs> you know, like God's the enforcer. It's not that kind of prayer. Because if you look at this same teaching as Luke writes it in Luke chapter 6, in that Jesus says in the same thing about loving your enemies and praying for them, Luke says Jesus also teaches at the same time Do good to those that hate you. Bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. And don't refuse to lend them money if they ask to borrow from you. Pray for those who hurt you. This prayer is about asking God to bless them. Not change them. Bless them. That kind of prayer will change my heart towards someone I think is my enemy. And the ultimate goal of this prayer, Jesus says, is that I might be a child of my Father in heaven. Jesus says, when God looks down from heaven and sees me doing these things, behaving counterculturally, loving and praying for my enemies, then God looks down and says, that's exactly how my kids ought to behave. Showing kindness when it's undeserved. Showing patience when patients would normally wear thin. Being the first one to send an email or write a letter or make a phone call when a relationship is strained. Being the one to invite a person to a dinner or a party when they'd normally be excluded. And when we do those things, our family resemblance to God our Father is at its strongest. Then in verse 47 in Matthew 5, Jesus asks a very soul-searching question. It's easy to miss. He asks, what are you doing more than others? If you only love the people who love you, Jesus says, well, then we're not any better than the people that we say are our enemies or the people we hate. They do that. Everybody does that. If we only greet our neighbors and friends... Everybody does that. What are we doing more than others? What real impact has Jesus made on our lives? Jesus says, I'm calling you to a higher standard. I'm calling you to live on a higher plane as my disciples. Be different. On a human level, I wrestle with this almost every day. Why love my enemies? I mean, I know Jesus says I need to. But why? Why would he ask me to do this? What's the practical outcome of this? Wouldn't it be enough to just be nice to them or not bother them or just make sure I don't cross paths with them so I don't agitate them? Seriously, why? A core issue in this for me and for us is that when I love my enemies, I'm letting God be God. It's a deeper concept 
in Matthew 5.45, where Jesus says, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God shows his grace in some form to every human being on the face of this earth. The sunshine, the rain, they fall on our, all people regardless of their relationship with God. And in this, God is asking us to behave in the same way to all people because His grace has been shown in my life. And, God's, and the reaction they have to God's grace and the grace we show to them, that'll vary from person to person. Some will accept the grace, some won't. But there is no way for you or me to know as we interact with people, there is no way for us to know which response will come from any individual in our lives, including our enemies. There is no way for us to know the end of the story. And so Jesus calls us to love and to pray for our enemies, to extend grace to them in the hope that one day their heart and their life will change so that we don't get in the way of God's grace. Secondly, when I love my enemies, it frees me up from bitterness. Now think about the amount of time that you and I spend on anger and revenge. How much emotional energy it takes to fuel that. How to plot revenge, figuring out just the right thing to do and the right thing to say if the opportunity comes up. And I'll admit, I will, that for a short period of time, that's really fun. You know, think of the right zing that you can do if the opportunity comes. But after a while, that pleasure turns to bitterness. And in my life, that bitterness starts to impact every single relationship that I have. It comes into every single conversation. And it starts becoming a reflection more of me than it does the person who's harmed me. And eventually, it impacts my relationship with God. It owns and ruins me as a person. And when I let it go, when I trust it to God, when I begin to pray for that person and I try to love that person, and it is a process, I am freed up from bitterness. Jesus closes his teaching with these shocking words, as if what he's already said isn't shocking enough. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thanks, Jesus. I did a lot of studying this week and looked at this in the original Greek language, trying to uncover exactly what Jesus meant here. And here's what he means. Be perfect. Took a lot of work to get to that. But it's not in the usual sense that you and I think of it. He's not saying don't sin. He's not saying you have to do everything right in your life. It's in the context of this passage. Jesus is saying be perfect in your distribution of love. Don't categorize. Don't break the people into your life, into the groups of people I love and people I don't, people I pray for and people I don't. Can you imagine how the world would change if every Christian began to live the way that Jesus teaches in this passage? 
Can you imagine how it would transform every city, every neighborhood, every home, every friendship? And just to be clear, when you begin to love your enemies like this, you will get hurt, you will get taken advantage of, and you will at times feel like you're the only one doing this. But it's the right thing to do as a follower of Jesus. Calvin's contemporaries were wrong. This teaching to love our enemies is not for only the advanced disciples of Jesus. It's for all of us from day one when we start to follow. There are no passes, no exceptions. We are all called to make a shocking statement with our lives. We are called to relate in a way that reflects the goodness and the character of Jesus. And Mary Roberts, in her letter to the Amish community, was right. When we do that, the compassion we show will reach beyond our family. It'll reach beyond our community. And it will.